What uh, motivates you to work or to do what it is that you're doing in your life? In the mid-1800s, in a famous novel, now play, Jean Valjean was released from a French prison. And after he was released, he found his way into a bishop's home who very kindly took him in. He had spent 19 years of his life serving in brutal prison conditions because he stole a loaf of bread during an economic downturn in order to feed his sister's children. He went into prison as a merciful man. He came out as a hardened criminal. When he came out, instead of rehabilitating, he relapsed. When he was in the bishop's home, he stole from him valuable silverware. And upon leaving, he was captured by the police. He was returned to the bishop's home. And he had told the police that the, the bishop, the priest, had given him the silverware. To his great surprise... And to anyone who has read this or watched it, to the audience's great surprise, the bishop agreed with Valjean. Instead of condemning him, which is what we expected, he actually gave him more silverware. And he said to the police that Valjean was innocent. He, in fact, had given him the valuable items. The police departed, and there is this powerful moment When the bishop looks at the astonished Valjean and he then confronts him and directs him to now go live his life in a totally different manner. Valjean was so overwhelmed by the the grace he was given when it was guilt that he deserved that for the rest of his life until the day he died, He never went back. Valjean honored and lived as a stewardship, the grace he had been shown. The analogy is not perfect to the gospel, but it does make a poignant point, doesn't it? When you personally know, deeply, personally, without any question, that you have received grace when you should have been condemned for your guilt, it changes you. It motivates you in a way that nothing else in this life can. It's the difference between working to get approval from someone and working from the approval you've received from someone. What's motivating you in your life? This morning we are beginning together a new series in the book of 2 Peter. Many years ago, I preached the letter 1 Peter. And now we want to begin a series in this second letter. A letter that the Apostle Peter probably wrote sometime between 64 and 67 A.D., before he was martyred for his faith. 
I want you to think about what life would have been like then for early churches. They were scattered. They were small. They were threatened by false teaching and false teachers. There was much at stake if they had been shaken at the core of their foundation. Christianity itself would have been corrupted in the world. And here's Peter about to die, instructing these churches in the power of the gospel, in the power of salvation, in order to keep them from going the way of what is false. There's an urgency in this letter because Peter writes with the end in view, his own life and the coming day of the Lord. I wonder what would be on your mind if you were writing something to a group of people and you knew those would be your last words to them. In this letter, we read Peter's. And this morning, we want to look at the very first 11 verses in which this old apostle seeks to make known the grace that he has known, that he has lived out of, that the Savior himself personally showed him. He wants his readers to understand as well. Look down at 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's Peter's main point. Work toward godliness because of God's powerful work in you. Work toward godliness because of God's powerful work in you. Three points to walk through this text. Divine power, 
divine work, divine reward. Divine power, divine work, divine reward. Let's begin with divine power, verses 1 through 4. You have in this letter from the very beginning, Peter showing immediately the divine power that has interrupted his own life. I want you to notice how he introduced himself. Simeon Peter, not Simon Peter. That's not a typo. It's the Hebrew spelling of Simon. He was Simon, Simeon under the old covenant. He's renamed Peter by Jesus in the new. Here's the man who famously denied Jesus because he was afraid of a servant girl who is now an apostle, an authorized representative of the risen Christ. And he's not the only one who knows God's power. He writes this letter, verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, I have to imagine that all of us have looked up to certain Christians in the world. And you probably have thought it's much easier for the Lord to love them than me. Maybe they were further along in the Christian life. Maybe they had been used by God in some particular way. Here's Peter leveling the playing field. He says to his readers, your faith is of equal standing with ours. That's the apostles. So the apostles were unique. They had unique authority from the risen Christ in the church, but they were given the same salvation on the same grounds as every other Christian. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The gospel's power comes from the same blood of the same Savior, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter who personally knew Jesus, says Jesus is God and Savior. He is affirming the deity, the godness of Jesus. One of my distinct memories from childhood was our recess time at playground. We would play sports, and there was a ritual every day. Two guys would pick the teams. And you knew what was coming. Out loud, they were going to pick who they wanted on their team from first to last. The team captains would call your names all the way from first to last. And you knew what it meant if you were there lingering around last. We all knew our worth based on where we were picked. It all had to do with how we could perform. That's not just recess, is it? That's the way this world works. The job market, how you perform in other ways. In this world, your worth is based on what you do, how you perform. This is a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that is totally different. The world includes and excludes based on performance or money or merit or whatever else. Not in God's kingdom. Everybody who is in, truly in, is in on the same grounds. Standing 
on the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've not been picked based on our merit. We're brought in on Christ's merit. One teacher says this so well, the struggling failure who trusts in Jesus is as much a child of God as the greatest hero of the faith. That's justification. Same standing on the same blood. What a different community this makes us as the church. We are in, we are members, not because of our ability, but Christ. That's what makes membership and life in the church safe. The free righteousness of Christ, the sure righteousness of Christ frees us to admit the worst about ourselves. Frees us to say we're totally bankrupt morally. We're totally dependent upon the righteousness of Christ. And when you have a community where that facade of having it all together morally is taken away, there's freedom to struggle. There's freedom for you to be honest about your sin. There's freedom for you to love other people, to receive their love. There's safety. There's space for you to change because we're all in based on the righteousness of another. It's, It's this kind of grace that makes a brother from Pakistan and a brother from India get together and be friends and help each other follow Jesus. Then he said it so well. It's not race, it's grace. It frees you to con- confess sin to someone else and even to hear someone else's confession of sin and never think you stand above them. But you're alongside them, walking home together. So as grace transforms each one of us, it transforms the whole of us. And it makes us compelling and provocative and it displays the gospel to the world. I pray that we're a body where there's no air of moral superiority. There's a real culture of grace that exists among us because each one of us knows that our faith is based on equal standing in Jesus Christ. Now that does not mean, does it, that there's not different responsibilities and even some that have authority in the body. Peter was an apostle. It does mean We're all standing on the same ground. We're all looking up to the same cross. And so we never teach. We never lead from above. We do so alongside. This is what the gospel does to us. So upside down, isn't it, in the Christian life? Those who are raised high are those who make themselves low. Looking up to the cross. Always looking to serve. Grace flows from the Savior who leaves heaven and makes himself low all the way to death on the cross. And so we can pray for real grace and real peace to be multiplied to one another in the knowledge of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. What a way to pray for someone else this week. That grace and peace would be multiplied to another brother or sister in this body. This is a man who's writing a letter who has received divine power. And he's writing to a people who have been formed by it. This letter is not filled with Peter's anxious thoughts about death. 
He was so fearful of a little girl when Jesus was dying. Boldly now, he holds out Christ. Only divine power is the explanation for this man's change. And that's where he begins in verse 3. Focusing us on divine power. You ever watch someone rise in power? That's the story of Yusuf Ali. Any of you heard of him? He's from Kerala. He left Kerala in the 1970s for the UAE. He came here with a suitcase and only the money that he had in his pocket. He came to work with his uncle. He was in the import-export business. And as they worked, his interest eventually took him to retail. And he took this risk. I think it was in the early 80s, to open a hypermarket. And he called it Lulu, which is Arabic for pearl. Showed up here with nothing. And now he's one of the, I think he's the number one richest Indian man in the Arab world. It's a rags to riches story. He goes from totally powerless to powerful. I think we love these stories because they're just a massive reversal. He's a self-made man. In this world, Yusuf Ali made it. And in this world, the Apostle Peter did not. End of his life, he's in prison, but he's so strangely confident because he knows his life bears the marks of divine power, that the God of heaven and earth has used all his power to give him life. That's what God gives in verse three, all Things that pertain to life and godliness by his divine power. And this life is eternal life. It's life that we don't have by nature. I, I think we love these stories of rags to riches because we can't imagine what a life of that kind of riches is like. He, he was so like us. He had to watch his money. He was an ordinary person. And his life changed. And he's got access to privileges and power and fancy jets and comforts that we can't fathom in this world. But it's all the power of this world. If you work hard enough, if you have enough talent, if you have enough connections, some, quite a number of human beings have obtained that kind of power. But what the powerless prisoner Peter points us to is a kind of power that no human being can produce on their own. It comes from the power of God. Everything, all things pertaining to life and godliness. Power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I wonder if you've taken your salvation for granted you think about who God is and all his power, he didn't have to use that power to give you life. Have you grown accustomed, if you're a Christian, to saying you have eternal life? Peter hadn't. He's in prison. Death is near. It's where his mind is. It's where he's turning the attention of the church to the life we've been given. By 
God's divine power. This is life at a qualitative level that is far greater than any rags to riches story. There's greater privileges, there's greater access, there's greater power in this life than any status that the world can provide. So I wonder if we covet the lives of others because we don't understand the life we've been given in Jesus Christ. That's where this life comes from. Look there at the end of verse three, through the knowledge of Jesus, him who called us to his own glory and excellent. So the eternal life of which Peter speaks comes through knowing him who called us. Before you knew Christ, Christ called you. He called you with power. He called you to his glory and excellence by his glory and excellence on the basis of his righteous life. That's conversion. It's being called to Christ by Christ, by his glory and excellence. It's to see Christ and to savor Christ by faith. It's to delight in Christ, have affections for Christ. Christianity is not abstract. It's personal. Because becoming a Christian comes from the personal call into your heart of the risen Christ. Why do some people see and savor Christ, rejoice in his glory, see his beauty and worth, and others don't? The personal call of Christ. Years ago, I was watching an Old Testament professor lecture online, these videos at Yale University. I was astonished. One, she knew the Pentateuch backwards and forward, and she didn't believe any of it. Why? She couldn't see the glory of Christ. She couldn't see the one it was all about. This is not about smarts. It's about sight. She's blind. If you love Christ, if you savor Christ in his glory, it's because Christ has called you. He knows you. Through the Son, the same Son, by which let there be light, went out into the world, came the call, let there be life in your heart. He called you. And in calling you, he's granted to you great and precious promises. Now, what are these? It's certainly the gift of the Spirit, which Peter speaks of. Particularly here, middle of verse 4, it is becoming partakers of the divine nature. Does not mean we become God. It does mean truly, spiritually, That just as we were united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, so now through our union with him, we are united to him in his ascended life. We have tasted of Christ. And so the the command for us in the Old Testament, which was be holy as I am holy, is now be conformed to Jesus, be like Jesus in the New Testament. You see Peter's logic God's work in power 
to grant you life and godliness, does that through the knowledge of Christ, gives you precious and great promises. Why? So that we might become partakers of the divine nature. Now what's astonishing at this point is we've done nothing. We've contributed nothing. All of this is God's power. Why are you a Christian? Because of the power of God. Why do you have these promises? Because God has done it. Why do you see and savor Christ? He called you. Why do you partake of the divine nature? Why are you united to Christ? Because Christ has done this work. All of this by God's power. And so the result, the reason, verse 4, you have escaped the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. He's not saying this world is just inherently, naturally corrupt. He says it's corrupted because of sinful desire. So this corruption is everything that is perishing in this present age. Now some of you, the scriptures will be new to you. And I do want you to see that Peter here, the rest of the scriptural writers, do not see our world as neutral. You'll see us as neutral. We're all filled with desires that have been, by nature, corrupted by sin. Not saying we're corrupt as we could be. The corruption has reached and touched every part of our being. I think when we think of this word corruption, we often only think of it as blatant evil, which it is that. But it can be more subtle. It can go deeper than we realize at first. We do something good for someone else, but what we really want is for them to praise us. We serve someone. What we really want is to get something from them. We're using them, not loving them. We do something anonymously, but what we really want is to say, see God, you owe me. We've been turned inward. We don't worship and treasure God as he is. We give lip service to that. We aren't the God-centered God-worshiping creatures we were made to be. But by God's power, Christians have escaped this corruption, its power and its guilt. Now, we love the stories of the Yusuf Ali's of the world, but I hope you're seeing that in heaven, every single story will be a rags-to-riches story. Slavery to freedom. Because in heaven... In different ways, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4 will be the story of every single person who is there. Do you think that the rich and the powerful of this world have greater privileges than you do? If you're a Christian, Peter means to change the way that you see. He means for you to have confidence that God has acted with divine power to give you a a kind of life, eternal life, that the world can't touch. It can't take away. You ever wonder what it would be like to win one of those drawings for a million dirhams or the car? You know, everything would change on the other side of that. Oh, if you could only grasp the power that God has worked in your life to give you life, you would see that amount of money or that car as so insignificant to what God has done by his power. 
to secure for you life and eternity. God's power, divine power, leads us to number two, divine work. Divine work, verses five to seven. We've seen this stunning view of the power and the grace of God. All that God has done and initiated this lavish view of his mercy. That's what's behind those three words in verse five. For this reason. I want you to imagine that you're the prince of a country. You know, when the prince of a country reaches a certain age, the king or the queen, whoever in royalty is responsible for this, sits him down, explains to him who he is, the family he's been born into, his privileges, his destiny. And it's at that point, once he understands all of that, there would be some kind of talk with him about becoming that how he must prepare for the future he's destined for. But it would only be done in the context of who he is already. That's what Peter's doing here. He tells us the indicative before he gives us the imperative. He tells us what God has done before he ever says what to do. For this reason, all that God has done by his power to give you these promises, all that God has done so that you might partake of the divine nature. It's only after that that he says, make every effort. That's the command. But it does not come until you understand the work of God in Christ. The bishop never commanded Valjean until he understood he'd been forgiven. And so the command to obey or to change was all joy, not a burden. Same logic here. By his power, God did not condemn you. He gave you life. Now make every effort. So like a prince preparing for royalty, Christian, you are to become who you are. Who God has made you to be. He calls you to make every effort toward becoming. That's divine work. You know what it is to make every effort you've ever worked out, you've ever competed. You know what it is to push yourself. There are things in this life you will not accomplish unless you put massive effort toward it. You know that's what it means to grow in the Christian life. If you look up to someone in the Christian life who you know has some maturity, they didn't get there by accident. Look, look at those last four verses. Notice all the P's, power, precious, promises, partakers. Do you see the word passive? It's not there. One teacher famously said, you will never drift toward holiness. The drift is away from it. I wonder what you would say with your life you're making every effort toward I mean, people give their lives making every effort toward something. Money or relationships or status or, or something like that. This, this world will never encourage you to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. 
this old apostle who's about to die? He does. Do you know what this making every effort looks like? Sounds big. It's actually pretty ordinary. Gathering with the church. That's honestly one of God's most important ordained means to grow you in Christ. Doing life meaningfully with other Christians, the one and others of the New Testament. Are you doing that? Why not just come and learn about membership and what it means to be a covenant part of a body of Christ next week? Don't, don't stay at the distance here. Let's, let's help each other together in this. It means making every effort to throw off sin and to obey Jesus. It, it looks so ordinary. It feels ordinary. Over time, it's extraordinary. When you make this effort, it's not legalism. It's actually making every effort toward life. Even in ministry, because a number of you are doing ministry, you can accomplish much, but what if you do it and you never grow in godliness? What if you seek to obey God and to do in your power what is meant to be done in God's? That's the foundation of this list. You should not read these, this list and think, okay, you add this virtue and then you add that one and you add that one. It's not that. And it's also not saying this is all there is in the Christian life. It's a comprehensive view of, of godliness. It starts with faith because of the dependence we know on, on God. It moves to virtue or goodness, the moral excellence and purity of who God is. You realize Christ has made us morally excellent in Christ. And we're to pursue that. And then for the third time in this letter, this word knowledge. Knowing God and his ways. Can you say that you've grown in knowing God? His ways, his works. Tozer famously said, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you know God? Does your knowledge of God transform you? Have you stretched yourself to to know God, to to learn of his attributes and character? Are you content with what people think about God? In no way grounded on how God has revealed himself. Do you realize eternity will not be long enough to exhaust our knowledge and enjoyment of God? Surely this life won't be then either. And then self-control. Christ has freed you from having to serve every desire you have in your flesh. Where do you need to grow in self-control? That feels scary to you. You realize God has given you everything if you're a Christian in Christ that you need to do that. He's given you the spirit. By the spirit, Christ controls you. His power at work in you. Is it Instagram? Is it social media? Is it a website? Is it chocolate? Is it Netflix? Is it something else? Where do you need more of Christ's power? He'll give it. Make every effort in steadfastness. I've been struck over the last few weeks in my own personal life how often the 
Bible says God delights in steadfast love. We said that together last week. He delights to just keep loving his people. Steadfastness is the intentionality to keep going. I'll say for me, the longer I go in the Christian life, the more I respect older saints who've just kept going. They just keep walking. Don't ever underestimate what God can do with a long obedience in the same direction in your life. And then godliness, brotherly affection, and love. There's to be this affection between the family of God characterized by love. It begins with faith. It ends with love. Oh, Lord, make us a body that loves each other, has affection for one another. Brothers and sisters, you are only this by the power of God. And one day, your sanctification, which often feels like this, if you're like me, is going to give way to glorification. You're going to become like Jesus. You're going to see Jesus as he is. Until then, make every effort. Live in view of it. Because the reward is coming. That's how we finish this morning. Divine reward. Divine reward, 8 through 11. How many times do children say to their parents, why? 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 And you give all these reasons why, and they ultimately end up saying, because I said so. No, no other reason. It's not bad, kids, to ask your parents why, if you really want to know the reason. Peter is concerned that you and I understand why. He's taught us what God has done. He has called us to make every effort. Now he tells us why. A great reward is coming. Verse 8, why do you want these qualities in increasing measure? For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As that word knowledge again. There's a kind of knowledge of Christ that does not lead to effectiveness or fruitfulness. So knowing Christ is a stewardship. So imagine the prince or the princess with all those privileges and then just waste them. It's unproductive. How much more the Christian who by the power of God has been given eternal life, crowned with glory, headed for glory, but is idle and lazy in your Christian life. Peter's not motivating you by guilt. He is motivating you by grace because to know Christ is a gift. And we make every effort in light of that gift to become effective and fruitful for Christ. Why? Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities has become so nearsighted, he is blind. He can't see reality. He doesn't grasp what is eternal. How? How do you become so nearsighted, short-sighted, that you're blind? Look at that. Verse 9, they have forgotten They were cleansed from former sins. Now, I love this language of cleansing. It's it's what we see visibly a picture of when someone is baptized. Why would someone with the knowledge of Christ lack these qualities and become effective? Why would they be blind? Because they have forgotten 
grace. That God through Christ cleansed you of your former sins. We do not grow when we forget God's grace. I honestly never cease to be amazed by this in the Bible. When the biblical writers motivate us to keep going, to to grow in godliness, to persevere, to be effective, they motivate us not by guilt, but by grace. How many times has someone tried to motivate you to obey or to do something, evangelism, missions, by guilt? Not the apostle Peter. He says it's by remembering how much you've been cleansed. So when you're blind, when you can't see spiritual reality, even as a Christian, it's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's because you have forgotten grace. You have forgotten verses three and four and all this wonderful, powerful work of God for you and in you. I think if your heart tends toward legalism and law, right now you're pushing against this. Because you're saying, rightly, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith. He does. But he did not start there. He started with what God has done. And this make every effort flows from that. If you you forget grace, if you fail to remember how God has cleansed you, you will start to make every effort, but you will stop because your strength is not enough for that. How would you motivate another Christian? What would be your instinct? Guilt or grace? A little bit more law or a lot of gospel grace by how much they've been cleansed and forgiven? deeper your understanding of grace, the deeper the well from which you can draw to obey Jesus. Have you forgotten how deeply you've been cleansed? Take a moment now to remember. Take a moment to consider the very personal grace of God in Christ to you in your life do you remember who you were do you remember when you first understood who Jesus was who you were and what Jesus had done remember that remember Jesus Christ And then do you see how that gives you a power to make every effort toward godliness? This is how you stay near the cross. It's how you keep looking up at the cross as you go deeper and deeper in grace. I also want you to take a moment to ask yourself if if you have a knowledge of God abstractly, but you're ignoring him. You push it away. It's uncomfortable. I want you to take a moment to consider that that knowledge you have is not meant to be pushed away. It's the personal transcendent God who created you, who knows you, who made you for himself, in his image with 
unbelievable dignity and worth. And then you, like me, have just pushed that knowledge down, have lived life on your own terms, thought to kind of shun him to the side and do things your own way. But he made you for him. And you act like he has no claim on you. Now, what should this God, with all of his power, what should he do to you? Here today, gone tomorrow. He should condemn you. But this text tells us he's done something so different from our expectations. Mysteriously, his son came into the world and took on flesh to save to live, to die for sinners in the most shameful way on a cross, to be raised from the dead so that the guilty would be made righteous and he, the righteous one, would suffer condemnation in our place. God raised him and has made him king and he, he holds out salvation, a real salvation for your guilt and your condemnation. And he calls you to escape the corruption of your sinful desires, not by making more effort, but by trusting in him and his work. Turning from what's corrupted you and believing on him. So my question for you would be, is Christ calling you? Don't ignore it. Do you hear him? Believe, receive him. He will receive you. You know, you're never going to regret for all eternity what your material status is in this life. You will rejoice that you were cleansed from your former sins. That by God's power and righteousness, you went from the rags of corruption to the riches of the righteousness of Christ. And so verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. You confirm something that is already true. To confirm something means it was already there. You're proving what was. It means making every effort to grow in godliness. It's pursuing verses 5 through 7. I love the way that uh, Michael Green, a, a Bible teacher, says it. A radiant life should be the silent proof of God's election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You won't apostatize. You won't fall away. And you'll reach the destination. Verse 11, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's Peter doing? He's raising your gaze to the end. I imagine... That the kingdom coming occupied Peter's mind so much in that prison. He had seen the Lord in his life, his transfiguration, in his death, in his resurrection. And now by by faith, he's looking forward to the coming kingdom. And he knew that the Savior would guarantee his entrance. Isn't it the destination that keeps you going on a long journey? However hard it is, if you can see the destination, you keep going. We're almost home. 
We're almost home. It's in this way, if you make every effort by divine power and God's work, it's the way to the divine reward. The gospel is the power of God. It is the news of what God has done by his power, how he powerfully transforms morally bankrupt spiritual beggars into sons and daughters of the king. Paupers become princes. Heaven's going to be full of rags to riches stories. Press on. We're almost home. And it's as we go deeper in the grace of the gospel that we add to our life all of this godliness in verses 5 through 7. Brothers and sisters, in heaven's eyes, you've escaped corruption. You've been cleansed of your former sins. Now like the freed prisoners who have received undeserved pardons from the risen Christ that you really are, go out and make every effort to live a godly life to the glory of God's name.